Welcome back to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Our season opener is now short of a belter. Uh, we are joined by co-leader of the Scottish Creek, or is it Liv Dems? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to speak out against the Queen, yeah. so... <laughs> we'll go Liv Dems, okay, Liv Dems. Nah, as we you know, need to Alex, explain what that's about. Yeah, it's well, awesome. I mean, we'll, we'll let you do the explaining in just a moment, but... As we know, Alex is one of the OG interviewees on the Untribal podcast. Honestly, he's been pestering me ever since the comeback on, email after email, but finally I found time for him, but no. Anyways, he's, he's a great guy, he's a passionate, he's got a good heart, he's built his political career on charity and social justice, and he's got all the makings to be a top, top politician. And he's going to do that by uh, getting the Lib Dems to bounce back in Scotland. And I don't know if he took that memo a little bit too literally because I did see him bouncing about a soft play centre in Kirk Liston the other week. That's right. <laughs> Don't That's know right. what you love Dems get up to. That <laughs> was a world record breaking attempt actually. It's it, it, yeah. it the longest inflatable assault course in Scotland. Or in the world actually, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, without further ado, Alex Cohalvin, ladies and gentlemen, how are you doing Alex? Great to see you in this, I'm fine, how are you? Thank, yeah, I'm good. good, I'm good. And speaking of that transfer of leadership, uh, yourself and Roy, take us back to that phone call. Oh wow, yeah, goodness. So um, it was, it, there was I think a bit of doubt in Willie's mind after the election. Obviously it had been quite a frustrating election for us. On the one hand, the, the election had been over two days. So the Friday was the, the constituencies and um, we had built citadels in our held seats. So in Orkney, in Shetland, in North East Fife, in my constituency of Edinburgh, Western, you know, in my seat, I got more votes than any candidate in the history of the parliament. Um, but that was undermined by the fact that we'd been squeezed in the regional vote and we lost our northeast regional place. So we'd actually slipped back by a seat. So I think that had left um, questions for Willie in his own mind about wh whether he wanted to continue. I would have been perfectly happy if he had done. I, you know, I'm a big fan of Willie's. He, he's one of my best friends. Um, and I always rated his leadership and that was not his fault. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it was also 10 years. It felt like a good shift. So. I had uh, not, he'd sort of left me with the impression as we went into the summer recess that he was going to do at least another couple of years, fine by me. Um, and then I went to Wales for a week with my family. We got back from Wales, he rang me, he said, did you have a nice trip? Yes, I said. And he said, well, that's good because I'm resigning the leadership tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, that sort of torpedoed the rest of the summer because you've got to put a team in place, you've got to think about lunch, you've got to think about your... Um, the manifesto and the story you want to set out for the party. Um, so it was a shock, but it, do you know what? I've not looked back. I've, I'm having the time of my life mm -hmm. and it is an immense privilege to, to do this job, particularly as it feels like I've got a ringside seat at history. You know, I, I'm witness to some amazing things and, and I think we are on the verge of some pretty seismic change, both in Westminster and then by extension the Scottish Parliament. Mm. And speaking of front row seats, that moment with the Queen, take us back, that must have been... Oh yeah, so this is you calling me the... <laughs> so I, the one and only time I met Her Majesty was in October last yeah. year, and I'd just been appointed as leader of the party. Um, and we were all lined up to meet her, the, the leaders of the parties, um, and we would, um, I was next to Lorna Slater, and she was introduced to Her Majesty as uh, Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Green Party. 
And then Alison Johnson introduced it to me and said, Your Majesty, this is Alex Cole Hamilton, leader of the Scottish Lib Dems, but she clearly not heard that bit. Um, and said, Oh, and do you share it then? And I was like, Share what? <laughs> See, uh, the leadership. Uh, oh, you think I'm a Green? No, I'm actually Lib Dem. Oh, you're a Lib Dem, that's fine. But what was funnier about it? Go for a bit. Go for a bit. <laughs> the, the really untold funny story about that meeting was, was less the um, her mistaking me for a Green, or Patrick Harvey, I look nothing like Patrick Harvey. But was we were told in no uncertain terms that absolutely because COVID was still at large, just Omicron was emerging, that we were not to break Her Majesty's social distance. That you kept the face mask on, you bowed respectfully, um, and she might say something to you and you, you spoke, but you would not break that social distance. And so the, imagine my horror when she comes to meet me in line and immediately reaches for my hand. I was so flustered, I almost battered it away. I was just oh, thinking, no. but actually she was really, really lovely. And yeah. um, it was a privilege to have got to meet her. Nice one. Uh, I mean, I, listen, I get buzzing when I'm a stone throw away from the proclaimers. <laughs> You've had partner with the Queen, that's, that's metal. You did gesture that you, you could potentially see some sort of reform in the royal family. Do you think the... Do you think the country's fallen back up in love with royalty since such a big event, or do you think that would be a useful conversation? Um, do you know what? I think actually the commemoration of the Queen's passing really brought out the best in the country, and you just saw. I thought it was very moving to see a national pastime in Britain, which is queuing, turn into such a, a sort of totemic and monumental show of love and respect to the Queen. And I think that. Um, Prince Charles, you can see the polling, has captured the imagination of the people. I mean, people want him to succeed, there's goodwill for him. Um, I have, um, you know, as a liberal, I'm a reformer. Um, I don't think people are born to privilege. I don't think that they should just naturally have lots of wealth and castles and the rest of it. So I would reform the royal family. I would probably downsize it. I would take, um, you know, I don't think it, the, the hangers-on need the sort of privilege and patronage they get. I'm not saying kick them to the curb, but I don't think they need the status and the, the estates and money they have. And similarly, I don't think the monarchy needs the sort of footprint in wealth and castles. Uh, but at the same time, I think that, you know, um, it works as a head of state in our context. And, um, you know, I think that you look at some of the European royal families and far more working royals, but far less of the trappings. Um, and the alternative, well, you just have to look at the Trump presidency to say that actually a sort of democratic um, figurehead is not always a good thing. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortable with where we are, but it could do with reform. Sure. And I want to sorry, I gesture before the interview. I've been watching you over uh, First Prince's questions over the months in yep. the least creepy way possible, <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've noticed you really home in on some issues, as in mental health, yep. climate change, sticking up for people along COVID, which is also dear to our hearts for the documentary next year. You know, making sure Ukrainians have a, a good welcome package. Stuff that really matters. Yeah, I actually wanted to commend you for that because seriously, these are stuff that matters. And I was recently writing about how in terms of climate change, the, the conversations that we're seeing in Parliament haven't been quite good enough. And I think that the need for politics, three, free in conversation and intellect is honestly as desperate as you need doctors in a humanitarian crisis just now. Because yeah. we, we are at a desperate state. And I just want to, to ask you, how are, have we got something so indisputable in importance in terms of climate action? And we're talking about things like fracking in the UK Parliament. I know. Um, I think on all, I'll, I'll take each of those three examples in turn in terms of um, the um, climate emergency, long COVID and, and the Ukraine situation, because I think they both each bear talking about it. I mean, 
we talk a good game on the climate emergency, but talk is cheap. And Nicola Sturgeon was quite happy to do her selfie tour of COP26 with all the world leaders, but she still got her guys to vote against my motion in the parliament to cancel the third runway at Heathrow, you know, or, or remove Scottish support for that. Because we need to throw our cap over the wall on this. You know, yes, um, we face a massive cost of living emergency, war in continental Europe, but the climate emergency hasn't gone away. I mean, just look at the Hurricane Ian in, uh, in Florida. That is the worst tropical storm in history. That is a product of our changing weather cycles as a result of man-made climate change. And, and we need to um, anti up to that. Second is long COVID. 204,000 Scots currently battling this debilitating condition with dozens upon dozens of symptoms. It wrecks lives and livelihoods. It is the biggest mass disabling event since the First World War. And we are nowhere. The Scottish Government is spending twice as much money on an independence referendum next year that's unlikely to happen as it is on long COVID. It's only £10 million to long, those 200,000 long COVID sufferers. It's nowhere near enough. And finally, Ukraine. Um, we wanted, I think the Scottish Government wanted the plaudits of being shown, shown to throw open the doors and say, you know, come to us, come to Scotland. And we've got 35,000 Ukrainians um, with a visa and a promise of home in Scotland, 18,000 of whom are not even here yet. And we have nowhere to put them mm -hmm. because the Scottish Government did not do the homework to, to, um, to backfill it. And, and you know what, and, and as an appeal to your listeners, you know, I, we are hosting a Ukrainian in my house. It is a lovely experience. She's become part of our family. Really? If you've got space, if you can do it, sign up because we still need homes. Mm. And how, how's that been for daily living? Has it disrupted any of your, any of your routines or uh, anything? Not at all. Um, no, we're really lucky actually. Um, so we probably see her, you know, um, once a day or so. And, and we actually actively, you know, have dinner with her once or twice a week, maybe a bottle of wine on the weekend or something. Mm -hmm. She likes to do that to improve her English. We like to do that to just hear her stories. She's been a refugee for a long time because she was from the East uh, when Russia invaded eight years ago. Wow. And she moved to another part of Ukraine to have to relocate. But wow, I mean, she is, she's inspiring. She's fun. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we're, we're just delighted to be able to offer her a safe home. Nice one. And just coming back to the sort of conversation in Parliament, what I worry about is I'm starting to see this pattern in conversation in Parliament where uh, the Conservatives have, have sort of grown as the anti-SNP party. They throw all these allegations towards Nicola Sturgeon. Um, Nicola Sturgeon then lists off a bunch of statistics that defy those allegations and then points the finger at Westminster. And then Labour come and say, oh, we can both be doing more. And I feel like we're losing the sustenance in conversation. And I see yourself coming in with meaningful topics, tangible solutions. I just wonder, is that dynamic in your heads when you're coming to the parliament with these kind of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I don't get into the news or onto, into any column inches by being the fifth voice on the same topic, throwing the same allegations or accusations. I, I want to bring light to the debate rather than heat. Um, and it's about um, offering costed suggestions and practical solutions to some of the problems and just getting us away from this. And you, you pointed it really succinctly there, I think, Ines. I mean, you know, we have been living in a clash of nationalisms in Scotland, by which I mean, of course, the, the Scottish nationalism of the SNP, but the Brexit, British nationalism of the Tory party. And we've been held back by that for years. We are a nation trapped between flags, between politicians who, who mythologise and pine for ancient nations that can't and should never exist again. 
um, and it's holding us back. We're told that every election, the sum total of every election is either vote for another independence referendum or vote against it. You know, that can't be the sum total of public debate in this country. I just want to move us on from that. And do you think that progressive politics will return to the chamber uh, after this independence question is completely down the water? And the reason I say that is because I look at the Lib Dems, Labour, Greens, and uh, to the SNP to some extent, you aren't singing from a totally different songbook in terms of things you want. So I just wonder that, and I don't think it is a surprise that the Conservatives have come up to Scotland and have tried to recreate this Westminster style of us versus them politics because it works for them. They've been tremendously successful over a number of decades in Westminster yeah. and this sort of, you know, divided, divided politics, it does suit them and I think that's why they've done so successfully. But the problem with that is it leaves out viable options of governance like the Lib Dems, this, this two-party system that's almost been recreated. So I wonder, are you looking forward to that question just being dead in the water so progressive politics can return to Scotland? So much, so much, because it has stifled so many other really important issues from, um, of political oxygen. It's just, they're nowhere. I mean, there are warning lights blinking across the dashboard of public policy. We're crying out for ministerial attention, but they get none of it. Why? Because the focus of every minister in that government is on the prize of separating Scotland from the rest of the UK. Um, I hope we're in the end game of it. I think we are in the end game of it. I was quite surprised when Nicola Sturgeon announced the Supreme Court action. Um, and then by extension, if that fails, which it will, I think, um, the uh, Westminster election is a de facto independence referendum. Um, I think it's quite arrogant to say that an election is about your thing. I think the public decide what an election's about, but she's nailed her colour to that mast. And I, I dare say that when we're through the other side of that general election, we will have resolved this one way or the other. Okay. And one thing... Can I just say, that's not to say I accept that it's a referendum, it's not. But I, I think the SNP... <laughs> just get that in there. <laughs> the SNP have said, you know, that's their end game. Mm -hmm. So if that's their end game, well, let it end mm -hmm. and let's move on. Yeah, sure. One thing that does concern me though is that, you know, you've got, you know, referendum promising parties in the, the SNP and the Greens uh, on the last election. Yeah. They did, to be fair, on the mass, most votes across the regional and constituency in the last general election. What concerns me is, you know, for the people that wanted to remain in the EU, you know, it, that the hypothetical granted, but imagine, you know, the Lib Dems and Labour had manifesto promises, they won that, and then the establishment said, nah, we don't, we're not going to have that, do you know what I mean? So, a couple of things. Firstly, um, even though they have the majority of seats, they didn't get over 50% of the vote. More than 50% of Scots voted for parties that did not support a second independence referendum. Secondly, um, the the suggestion that we would make it back into the EU as a re result of independence is false. I mean, we know that we would join, we would go to the back of the queue behind Ukraine, behind other Eastern European countries trying to get in to the EU. Um, we would have to meet their accession criteria. We'd have to pay down our deficit, which is before the pandemic was at 9%. You need it to be three. That would cost a lot of pain and time. I mean, it would be probably a decade before we were even at the races in terms of being considered for it. Um, and the other thing was, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that Nicola Sturgeon has a mandate for it because it's tainted. She said halfway through that election, um, the, she was saying, give me a mandate for another independence referendum. And she started to slide in the polls. So about four weeks out from the election, she changed tack and said, who do you want to see us through the pandemic? 
and we stopped talking about the independence referendum. She even told a guy on BBC, yeah, you can vote for me even if you don't support independence, because it's not about that. So I don't think they can have it both ways. Fair enough. Well, shifting before we spy to yourself, Alex, and I know you don't want to talk about independence. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, I understand you're a Quaker. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about that and why that you endorse those principles in your life. Yeah, so, so for those of you who don't know what a Quaker is, it is a form of Christianity. Um, and I am, I, yeah, I am a Quaker. I'm, I'm quite agnostic. That's a beautiful thing about Quakerism. It doesn't ask you to believe anything in particular. I mean, it's rooted in Christianity, but there's huge tolerance for anyone who wants to come and be part of that family um, is welcome. And I think what spoke to me, and I'm, I'm the only Quaker in my family, although my mum sometimes goes to Quaker meeting, um, and my kids are now becoming Quakers because they're ch choosing that way. Um, but the, the Quakerism is sort of united around sort of concepts, so conflict resolution through nonviolence. I mean, you know, there's big peace missions with the Quakers in Israel, Palestine, for example. Um, there's equality, you know, that we're all um, born equal um, and that we should try to, to sustain that equality, looking for that of God in everyone. So accepting that, you know, nobody's born evil and that even, you know, people who've committed horrendous crimes um, often do so as a product of their upbringing or the things that have happened to them and trying to look past that and find the good in them. So, you know, I think all of these things really speak to me. And um, and actually, it's hard to see where my Quakerism ends and my liberalism begins. I think they're very much, my politics are very much linked to that that school of thought. Nice one. And it's rooted in sort of pacifism and anti-war, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, and um, pacifism is an interesting word. And actually, funnily enough, the Ukraine war has made me really think about this because... I am a Quaker and I believe passionately in peace and conflict resolution, but I think the Ukraine war has made me realise I am not a pacifist because I was putting myself in, trying to imagine myself in the situation of like, um, you know, if my, my family and I had been in Mariupol and I managed to get my wife and kids out and obviously the men were, had to stay, would I have picked up a gun? Probably, yes. I think to defend your home, to, um, when, especially when you, you're aware of the atrocities that might be committed if you don't try and protect your family or the, those around you. Mm -hmm. It's a hard one. It's really tested me. Yeah. And my father is not a Quaker, but he's an Anglican, but he's a pacifist. He, until now, he would have been called himself a pacifist. But he told me the other day, you know, he was literally sending my inheritance, spending my inheritance on fire and forget anti-tank missiles that he's sending to Ukraine. You know, he is so passionately supportive of the Ukrainians. And I, and I, I love him for it. I think that's exactly... You know, we have to. There are times when you have to take a stand against evil in the world. This is one of those times. So that's that's where I find it interesting, like on the issue of Ukraine, because you're also passionate about being a Quaker, but that obviously is rooted in pacifism. Yeah. I just wonder. So obviously, in that extreme example, if you were Ukrainian and in that situation, you, you don't know like what you would do. It's, it's that extreme. It's hard to imagine. And um, you you're saying you'd probably pick up a gun. Fair enough, but. If you were Prime Minister tomorrow, yeah. how would you see Britain on the international stage in terms of military interventions and, and going into countries across borders in the name of... Well, I think um, I, I, I absolutely support um, British government's approach to Ukraine in terms of making sure it has the material and the weaponry to fight the war that it has to. And it's a war that has been forced upon them. This is not an act of aggression by Ukraine. These are people fighting for their homes fighting for their families and against um, a brutal dictatorial regime. Um, so I, I, have, I, I wouldn't think twice as Prime Minister of continuing that support. Um, I think we need to be very careful about 
escalation and miscalculation. I think the British boots on the ground, um, as in British Army boots, as in officially sanctioned, rather than people who are going over to volunteer, could create you know a, a situation where we are in a hot shooting war with Russia and mm. with a madman in the Kremlin. Who knows where that ends? So I think the, the things are incredibly finely balanced at the moment. It also make, gives me real concern about who, who we've got in number 10 at the moment, because I think that Liz Truss has really shown herself to be indecisive, weak, um, just wholly incompetent in a lot of layers. And yet she is the one with our, the keys to our nuclear launch code. Mm. Well, on that note, you know, I, I want to bring you back uh, to when you said you, know, you, you, know, you support you know, spending this money on giving resources to Ukrainians just now. I just, I just want to bring you in the shoes of a, a, a taxpayer that is working all week, uh, paying taxes and is still having to use our food bank just now. And he is thinking about, um, you know, international affairs such as Syria, where we spent, you know, almost four billion pounds in, in Syria and we left it an absolute tip. I wonder, you know, what that person is thinking in terms of the Chancellor saying we've just spent 2.3 billion in Ukraine over the past year, we're going to replicate that in resources over the next year as well. So 4.6 billion is going to Ukrainians yeah. and they can't feed their family. Yeah, I know. And and it is, it's a tough sell. But then the point is, um, you know, would you, we're not that far removed from where I think Britain was in 1940. And um, it would have been an opportunity, you know, we sent a British expeditionary force to Dunkirk you know, we armed the French, we, we tried to keep them in the war for as long as we could because we knew that it was France today, but it would be Dover and Anglesey and Prestwick tomorrow. This is the reality of where we are. You know, Putin wouldn't stop at Kiev and he wouldn't stop at Ukraine. He would go on to the Baltic states. You know, he, this is about czarist domination. And there's a point at which you say, yeah, um, um, it will cost us and it will hurt, but the price is worth paying. I, I think to your person, your taxpayer in the street, I would say there are other choices the Conservative government that are making that I would reverse, which would put more money in your pocket rather than stopping that fund to Ukraine. So, um, well, we already succeeded in getting them to reverse the 45p tax cut. Um, but there's there's other a range of other policies that you know the Rwanda plan for example you know it's shipping it's going to cost hundreds of millions of pounds, which is actually just a gimmick. It's a dog it's dog whistle politics for the hard right. Mm. And in terms of you know going back to military interventions, I, and the reason I come back to Syria is because we were actually launching airstrikes in Syria as recently as last year, mm -hmm. and it's not very documented that well at all. No. And I think Theresa May threw out the window. I mean, I think we, we learned from Iraq and Afghanistan the bloodshed and lives and the money that that cost, that at minimum, Parliament should be having a decent conversation and a vote about it if we're going to make any drastic decisions abroad. Theresa May chucked out the window when we sent in airstrikes to Syria back in 2017 or 18, I think it was. And Syria is, is devastating now. Over 80% of the population is in poverty. You know, half a million dead, seven million abroad in refugees. It's an absolute mess, and I just, I just worry that the conversation is not good enough in Parliament in these matters as well. Because I looked at the transcripts on Hamzag about uh, debates in Syria. We've had one debate since that yeah. initial airstrike, and it was about as insightful as a transcript of a Lemmy episode. <laughs> Honestly, it was 
it was farcical. Yeah. So I just wonder what you would want Liberal Democrats to bring to the table in terms of those matters. So I think, um, I, I've thought about this a lot over the years, because it wasn't just Syria, it happened in Iraq as well, you know, the, in terms of the level of parliamentary scrutiny and debate of the original plan to send troops to Iraq in, in 2003. Um, I, I would like to see a more codified um, set of principles and by which British, the British government commit troops or any kind of military resources to a, a region. Um, and, and I think you do that by emulating something in America which is called the War Powers Act, where you have to recognise that the executive branch of the, the government, um, as in the presidency, or in this case the prime minister um, and ca cabinet, need, um, need the flexibility to, at a moment's notice, um, if British interests are at risk or British um, citizens are at risk or uh, we're part of a, a, an emergency response to something, that there is the flexibility to commit troops in the short term, um, but uh, but but in the War Powers Act in the United States, um, Congress has to convene within two weeks of that happening to ratify that decision, and there needs to be a full and frank debate. And I think it would be a very simple mechanism to have, but it would automatically give that scrutiny. And if it was the wrong call, we could get those the troops out. Um, but you still need to have the the executive branch give them that flexibility because we live in a very very quick changing world and and um, and so they need to be able to respond sure and you've talked about in your manifesto i'm sure about um, the lived ends what a nuclear free world in terms of weaponry um, do you think there's any merit in the argument for nuclear weapons after putin's recent nuclear threats so again you're talking to a quaker here and brass tags i i believe in ridding the world of uh, nuclear weapons i i probably am a unilateralist but um, at the same time, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a realist. Um, I, I think it says a lot that the only country in the world to have ever um, unilaterally disarmed its nuclear weapon capability was Ukraine. And look what's happened. Um, I think I understand the intellectual arguments around continuous at-sea deterrence, the fact that countries will no understand that even if they destroy your entire landmass, there will be three or four submarines out there somewhere who at any point could just exact revenge on you. Um, and so there's a very finely balanced argument there. I mean, I, I want a nuclear free world, but we have madmen with nuclear weapons in it. So until that happens, you know, I think we need to recognize that that's not gonna happen overnight and we need to solve those situations first. Fair enough. And last on Ukraine, you know, Putin's talked about how um, the West expects everyone else uh, to be colonized in the way they want world order to be, they, they barge into countries, you know, they, they do what they like and what they expect everyone else to essentially dance to their tune. And, and I'm thinking back to Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. Do you think we've got any blame for this invasion in Ukraine? Well, I, I think there's two questions there. I mean, I, th I think we've certainly got culpability for what happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. In fact, most of the problems in the Middle East um, have been created by British cartographers in the last century, drawing lines around oil fields um, in the carve-up of the spoils of war. So the McMahon-Hussein Declaration, the Sykes-Pico Agreement, all of these were British-led, the Balfour Declaration, these were all British-led treaties which carved up the Middle East into the hodgepodge of countries we have now, many of which are uniting disparate tribal factions, like um, the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias, 
um, and created a lot of the tensions that exist. We promised the same bit of land to the Palestinians uh, to create Palestine and Israel in the same place. We, we did that. So we're, we're responsible for that. We have a responsibility to atone for that and, and try to, to fix it. Um, are we responsible for Ukraine? Yes, um, I think, but not in the way that Putin says that we are. I think that we are responsible for Ukraine in that we should have stood up to Putin when he invaded Crimea and when he, um, when he invaded Donbass and uh, Donetsk, uh, which is where um, our Ukrainian house guests come from. Um, but I don't think it's because, you know, he's trying to say, well, this, the creep of NATO expansion led to this. Well, I'm sorry, that wasn't an aggressive creep, and you don't, you don't excuse your um, your aggression by pointing that. Mm. Thank you for that. And you know, you've been a massive advocate of um, you know protecting long COVID sufferers. And as I mentioned before, we're doing a documentary following one of our employees um, and their life and uncovering some of the hardships that they go through. Um, I'm sure that you know, um, no plenty about speaking to long COVID sufferers yourself. Um, you know, the ability to try and get funding and financial help for this is, is not only um, tiring in itself for these people, not only very difficult to do, but it also is quite traumatic for these people and the things that it brings up. You know, as we were talking about earlier with yourself, the big thing about ME sufferers, for example, is getting that diagnosis and going through all these experiences of seeing doctors saying there isn't anything wrong with you and the psychological damage that that does as well. And I just wonder, how are you getting on with your calls to the Scottish Government to try and sort this? Oh, and it's that, I mean, you're, you're on the money there. I mean, that's the, the stigma around both ME and long COVID is huge. I mean, if it, let's go back to long COVID. You know, if you talk about the long haulers, you know, the people that got COVID in the first wave, I believe that might be yourself, is that right? right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Got COVID in the first wave um, when people weren't being tested. So nowhere in their medical records is it ever having a, a diagnosis of COVID. And then you're going to your doctor and saying, I'm tired, I've got air hunger, I've got gastrointestinal issues, I have muscle spasms and cramps. You know, some of these are, this is just, that's just four of the like basket of symptoms you can have with long COVID. And they look at your medical records and say, well, I don't know what it could be. They say, well, like, I think I had COVID in 20, March 2020. It's like, yeah, but is that real long COVID? You know, it's a massive stigma about it. So even just getting people to the races and being believed and getting them recognised is the first stage. But then what? You get a diagnosis for long COVID, there's nothing for you. I mean, genuinely, and I don't say this lightly, but long COVID sufferers in Scotland would be better off moving to England where they have long COVID nurses, where they have long COVID clinics and care pathways. We need that. We need research done into microclotting, into hyperbaric treatment, into um, physio, into whether gradiated exercise therapy is like what it is for me, which actually makes it worse, or if it's actually helpful. You know, we don't know any of these things, but we need to take people with long COVID seriously and we need to take people with ME seriously. Final thing on ME, there are more pandas in Scotland than there are dedicated ME nurses. That is a crying shame. Well, there you go. Well, listen, we're, we're coming to an end. Alex, I want to thank you this afternoon. It's been a little bit heavy, the conversation, yeah. so I'm going to end with a couple of fun okay. questions, as you might remember from last yeah, night. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the first one, I'm, I'm going to ease you in. Um, what has been your proudest moment in politics? Ah, oh, wow. Um, actually, probably... 
it was something I did before I was elected, and I was I influenced the, the Children and Young People Act in 2014. And it was an amendment I wrote that changed the age of leaving care in Scotland from 16 to 21, because um, the reason why care leavers or care experienced children will be less likely to go to university than they will be to go to prison is because we were asking them to leave their caring placement um, at the age that they should be sitting life qualifying exams, you know, and, and giving them a bin bag of clothes and putting them in a bed set. Um, that, we changed that. We, we still haven't got it quite right, but that, that's definitely one of the proudest things I've ever done. Nice one. And um, Edinburgh or Aberdeen? Edinburgh. Edinburgh, love that. <laughs> um, I did, you... but I did go to university in Aberdeen, so that's, I've that's experienced I both, yeah. absolutely. And I love Aberdeen, but Edinburgh. Yeah, nice one. It's just brighter here, you know, you've got yeah. much darker winters in Aberdeen. Fair enough. If you had to put together a Scottish Parliament stag do, who would be your best man and who would your girlfriend oh, wow. be? Oh wow, oh wow. Gosh, actually, that's really Who's mental on the baby? It was much more Well, well the funny thing is, like, one of my closest <laughs> friends is an Asawa, but he doesn't actually drink, because so, oh, okay, okay. he's, he's a Muslim. Um, Jackie Bailey is also better. She, she'd probably make it onto the team anyway. Um, and who else do I? I get on with that, actually. I really get on with quite a few guys in Parliament. Not many from the party of government. That's not my fault. They just think I'm basically Voldemort. <laughs> but um, but I really yeah like uh, Donald Cameron in the Tories is really nice I really really get on with him but there's a lot actually do you know what I, one of the things I like about my job is that many of despite our political differences we get on really well um, apart from in the SNP <laughs> they don't speak to anybody outside the SNP but yeah so I'm lucky like that so you're not going for a fight with Nicola Sturgeon then are you she's actually very shy she's she? very shy yeah <laughs> and um, try and make small talk with her but it, it's it's tough Fair enough. Who is your favourite Scottish icon, past or present? Jackie Bailey. Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Scottish icon, oh gosh. That's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, the, a few going through my mind, musical side of things. Um, I had uh, dinner with Deacon Blue. They were all really nice uh, on time, so they're icons, aren't they? But... Elsie um, Ingalls, there you go, that's a, that's a bit more highbrow. So Elsie Ingalls ran, uh, set up the women's hospital movement in the, in the Crimea, well, First World War and the Crimean War. No, not the Crimean War, sorry. She was in Serbia and then she was in uh, the Western Front. And um, she was a remarkable, she was a suffragette and she was a remarkable woman. And we are just about to win a campaign to ha have her commemorated in Edinburgh with an, uh, a statue. And she will be one of the only female statues in the whole of the city. There are more giraffes commemorated by statues. Oh, animal! I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But it's because they, she owns the zoo, Pat, Pat, Yeah, that's it. It's a, <laughs> subliminal, go visit Edinburgh Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. Nice one. Are you going to be supporting England or Wales in the World Cup group? England. England, okay. Yeah. I can say that, I was born in England. Um, my dad yeah, is half Welsh. Welsh. Yeah, I thought you Yeah, were. yeah, so, but England, yeah, definitely. It wouldn't be an I'll, I'll back it. I'll back Wales as well, whenever they're playing. Yeah. Nice one. Uh, it wouldn't be an untriable podcast episode if I didn't make you incredibly uncomfortable with the question. Yeah. If you had to remarry a politician, who would it be? Remarry? Remarry. As hard as that would be, I know you love your wife. Anna Sarwa. Anna Sarwa. The bromance continues. The bromance continues. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure, Alex. Is there anything else you want to say to us? No, in a, um, I always enjoy being on your show. Uh, can't wait to come back. I'll just start the emails coming again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. Excellent.
Nice one. All right. Yep, that's, that's great. great.